Good morning, everyone. Wow, what an irony. A father baptizes his son, and a son baptizes his father. Don't see that every day. And what a joy to see the grace of God, the, the electing sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. If only it was that easy. You just call someone up and say, hey, why don't we talk about God? They come to your basement and they accept Christ. But we all know that it's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you. Um, you don't have to bring people down your basement and bolt the door. Um, I think that was kind of making John's dad a little nervous when I locked the basement door. Um, so Jesus just takes all of us, ordinary people. He doesn't need pastors, preachers, uh, seminary people. Each one of us is just a, a beggar. I'm just a beggar who found bread and is pointing others. And so I just want to encourage you. Most people that come to the Lord, they come out of a relationship. John's dad and I had a relationship going for years. And so just be in prayer. The Apostle Paul taught us to just pray that God will give us open doors. In fact, there's a funny backstory to that because most of the time, if, if you're in a relationship with someone and you feel like the Lord's opening the door, you might ask, hey, could we talk about the Lord sometime? It's, it's quite often that they go, yeah, maybe sometime. In fact, what Rich didn't tell you is I said, you probably don't have time this weekend. And he said, no, I do. Yes, I will. Uh, when are we doing it? Okay, I'll be at your house. So he, he tells John Saturday morning, I'm going to Pastor Tom's house and I'm really excited about talking about my relationship with God. John texts me, what happened to my father? <laughs> His dad never once wanted to talk about that. So it was a dramatic work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's so precious about the grace of God is we never know, like a, like a, a farmer, we never know how God's going to bring watering, planting, but as Paul said, it's God who gives the increase. It's God who gives the glory. So. Each one of us just pray, build those friendships, ask for opportunities, and then the Spirit of God is using us as a church as, as we go out into the community. And Paul said our gospel doesn't come in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. So praise the Lord and pray that many others will come to know Christ. Some like Cameron, hopefully those of you that are raising your children in the Lord from early childhood, they'll embrace your faith. But the Lord is so good to us, and it's just exciting to see His grace at work. I want you to take your Bible now and turn to Revelation chapter 2. As you know, we're in this series. And as John so fitly introduced us last week, we saw this amazing vision of Jesus. And one of the common themes that people have in the Bible is when they see Jesus face to face, there's nothing else they can do but just fall down. And John fell as a dead man. Isaiah said, woe is me. Luke or Job said, um, I repent in dust and ashes. Peter, as he realized who Christ was, he fell down and said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And here John falls down as a dead man. So when we left off, we said that chapters two and three are letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. The apostle John, we think, was a bishop that oversaw these seven churches, and so he had a, a real um, passion to see them growing in the Lord. So as we go through these churches, we're gonna do two at a time. So I'm gonna do the first two. Next week, Pastor Austin will do the next two. But what I want you to do is always read ahead. 
In fact, I, I like to read the whole letter, the seven churches, because there's kind of a, a structure that's cool. Which ones is, is the Lord commending? Which ones is he, um, is he correcting? Now, interestingly, remember the show Undercover Boss, right? Suddenly you find out that the undercover boss is, is in your midst. It kind of made me think about that because as John said last week, Jesus says, I walk in the midst of the churches. In other words, the honored guest in every church is the Lord Jesus. And particularly when they're gathered, there's something unique when Christians gather. Jesus says, whenever you gather in my name, there I am in the midst. Now, it's not as though if you're not gathered, he's not there. But Paul even said it this way, when you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. So, so picture Jesus walking among the seven churches. And one of the things that characterizes Jesus is, even his enemy said this, teacher, you always speak the truth and you defer to no one. So Jesus becomes a great model to us of giving people constructive feedback. He pours out his love on each one of these churches, but he very clearly shows them areas that they need to change. Now, in the past, it has been thought, and I don't agree with this, that these seven churches are supposed to be a model of the seven stages of the church throughout history. So in other words, this first one we'll look at was the early church, and the last one, the seventh church, Laodicea, is the final days before the return of Christ. I don't agree with that. I think that's way too subjective. There's really no way to tell. I think it's better to simply look at each one of these letters and say, as a church, what can we take away? And then more importantly, as an individual, what is the Lord speaking to my heart in terms of encouragement and correction? So let's pray together and we'll go through these two. Dear Lord, thank you so much for what a joy to, to just celebrate Rich Beagle's conversion and Cameron's conversion and, and just to see that your spirit is at work in this dark, twisted world. Jesus is still rescuing sinners. And so, Lord, as we read these letters, it's kind of like getting a report back from the doctor. Hopefully our cholesterol is good, but there's some other things that we probably need to change our ways. So speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at the, the first church is the church at Ephesus. Now, remember the Apostle Paul had a significant ministry in Ephesus. In fact, he spent three years in Ephesus. He actually started a Bible school in Ephesus. And as he started this school where he trained disciples, then they went out and spread the gospel throughout Asia. And that's probably how a number of these other seven churches were planted. But this was obviously an exemplary church. But by now, that was probably in the 60s. Now it's the 90s. And so commentators have suggested that this is the second generation Christians. And those of you who are second or third generation Christians know how easy it is to kind of lose your passion. In fact, I remember my kids saying this to me, and, and it makes sense. And you parents who are raising kids and now you're first generation Christians. It's really fair. They say, you know, Dad, you got to go out and do your thing and be out there in the world. And then you had this dramatic coming to Jesus. But Dad, this is all we know. This is, this is, this is all we're raised in. And so how, how do I know if I really believe what you believe? And since God doesn't have any grandchildren, each person, as you grow up a second generation Christian, has to grasp that faith for themselves. And so praise the Lord, Cameron has chosen 
to grasp that faith for themselves. But it's easy to, to lose your passion if you haven't had a dramatic conversion. Now, what I, what I want to encourage you to recognize is a lot of people make a big deal about dramatic conversions. Dramatic conversions are far in the minority. Most people get saved as kids. And as Cameron said, he's five years old. Well, how much is your life going to change when you're five years old? You, you stop burying your friends in the sandbox? I mean, it's just... So don't worry about not having a dramatic conversion. In fact, don't even worry about knowing the day you were converted. What you need to know is that you are converted. That today, you trust and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see what Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus and how this applies to us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, now, John just alluded to this, and I'll just make a brief comment. The Greek word angel, angelos, depending on the context, can simply mean messenger, or it can literally mean angel. It's the same word. It's all about the context. The problem here is both of them are possible. It is possible that each church has some sort of an angelic overseer. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, women should have their head covered because of the angels. Or, this is simply talking about some sort of a pastor or bishop over the church at Ephesus. So in other words, John, give this to their spiritual leader to read to them. So I tend to probably lean more towards an earthly messenger. So it could be translated to the messenger of the church at Ephesus. But I'm fine if someone says, no, I think, think it has an angel. All right. So remember that as John introduced these characteristics of Christ in symbolic form, each of them will now be referred to by Jesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So that's, that's, that's Jesus, right? The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So picture Jesus. The lampstands are the church. Jesus is always walking among the churches. He comes in when we come in. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, if, if an unbeliever comes into your midst, and the Spirit of God is working, and you're prophesying one by one, he'll fall on his face and say, surely God is in the midst of these people. And so let's remember that, that it's not about the preacher, it's not about anybody, but Jesus. And picture Jesus just walking among us, and looking at us, and knowing about us. And so look what he says. He commends them. There's this sevenfold pattern here. To each church, he, he commands the angel to write, or the man to write, he, he gives a description of himself. Then he gives them a commendation. This is what you're doing well. Then he gives them an accusation of some sins. He teaches them how to repent. Then he says, you better listen. And finally he says, here's the promise. If, if you do what I say, this is the reward. And that's going to go throughout the whole set of letters. So let's see what he says. The commendation. So it wasn't like they were a terrible church. He said, I know your deeds and your toil. In other words, they were workers. It's amazing today how many people call themselves Christians, do nothing. They, they feel as though planting their backside on a chair for one hour is doing God a big favor. So deeds and toil involves doing the Lord's work. This isn't talking about pastors, but every Christian should be thinking, am I doing anything in my local church? If you're not, let us know. We always need more workers. So, he says, I know you're working hard, and I know that you're persevering, meaning steadfast. And then he says, and you cannot endure evil men. 
Now, he doesn't mean here that he's gone, Ew, I can't stand my next-door neighbor. He uses drugs. He's not talking about some sort of evil individuals. He's talking about evil men in your midst. This is really important to understand. Satan has two ways to destroy, well, lots of ways to destroy churches, but two of his main ones are persecution from without, which is going to be the next church, or poison from within, false teaching. Ironically, in Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul said to the elders at Ephesus, be on your guard, because after I leave, savage wolves are going to rise up from among the church, not outside, and they're going to seek to lead the flock astray. And so right now, all over America, there are people standing up and preaching and, and twisting the Bible, telling them the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. And the Bible predicts this. In 2 Peter 3, it says there will be false teachers who will twist the scriptures. And so we need to think about this. Today, there are so many people who are saying, oh yeah, Jesus, you know, you can be a Christian, but Jesus isn't the only way. You can be a Christian and you can fornicate. You can, you can live a homosexual lifestyle. You can be a Christian. There was a group of Muslim, uh, and, uh, missionaries who were telling Muslims, you can become a Christian. You just don't, you don't have to tell anyone. Just, just um, practice your faith, but, but, but you never have to confess. Don't, you don't even call yourself a Christian, even if somebody asks you. So we need to be discerning. So look what Paul says. He, or John says, you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. So they had traveling teachers back then. And someone would show up and say, hey, I, I was sent out to, to come and, and share. And, and real traveling teachers, second and third John says, you're supposed to show them hospitality. But they wouldn't just say, hey, come on, get up and preach. They would test them. John told the disciples in 1 John 4, 1, test the spirit, see if they're really from God. See what they really believe. Ask them some questions. For example, do they believe Jesus came in a human body? If not, they're not from God. So the church was doctrinally sound. These were well-taught Christians, people who read and studied and said, that's not right. So then he says, you have perseverance and you've adored for my namesake and you haven't grown weary. But now comes the correction, and I think this is something we all have to ask ourselves, because sometimes we get so busy for Christ, like Martha and Mary. But what about our relationship with Christ? So he says, but I have this against you, that you left your first love. You left your first love. Now, literally, if someone says, I left my love, that's like, I, I walked away from my spouse. There's actually three possibilities for what this means here. The first one is that it's directly their relationship with Jesus. They have left that passionate relational love for Christ where they're eager to be with him, actively obeying him, excited about him. The second view is it's not primarily a vertical love, but it's, they, they've lost their horizontal love. They're kind of, they're busy, but, but they're not getting along real well. You know, they're just, they're not a very loving church. The third view, which is interesting, Greg Beal, who has a huge commentary, he says that he thinks the primary meaning here is that they've lost their passion to be a witness. That the love that they had for Christ, at first they were sharing their faith, and now they just stopped sharing their faith. And he has some significant um, support for that, but 
I, I hate to limit it to that. So ask yourself this. Number one, you, can, you could test if you love Jesus by this. He says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. So anytime we are deliberately disobeying Christ, we know that our love for him is waning. So look at the correction. Remember from where you have fallen and then repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Now, what would that look like? For some people, it's like when I was first saved, I used to always get up in the morning and read my Bible and pray. Or I used to go around and tell people about Christ. Or I used to always have Christians over. So each one of us, there's an individual application that says, are there some areas in your life where, just like your marriage, you, you've eroded? Or, or are you intentionally fanning the flames to cultivate your personal relationship? Maybe they were stopping witnessing. But whatever it is, he says, go back and do what you did at first. Don't we all say, oh, honey, remember when we first fell in love? You ever seen that? I always tell my students, I say, Karen, if I'm walking by and I hear you go, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. <laughs> no, you hang up. I said, I'm grabbing the phone. Here, I'll hang up. <laughs> right? So... In the same way with Christ, you know, when people are in love, they're excited to get the next text. They're excited to talk. They're excited to spend time together. If our hearts have grown cold to that, which I think we all have to say that happens at times, it's not like we can just conjure up, okay, I'm going to start loving Jesus, okay? How do I fall back in love with Jesus? Well, number one, I just repent. I, I admit, Lord, I've grown cold. I, 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 I've kind of put you on the side. If you've ever read the little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, it's kind of, I've just assigned him to a little room and I'm ignoring him. But number two, spend time at the cross. Because our love for Christ is not fueled by our ambition. It's fueled by a recognition of his grace and love. Charles Spurgeon used to say, if you want to stay on fire for the Lord, you have to stay close enough so the sparks keep falling on you. You see, we don't love Christ because we're some better people than others. We love him because he first loved us. And so go back to Calvary. Go back to the simpleness of the gospel and see Jesus there loving you, hanging there for the joy set before him and return to your relationship. Return to whatever it was that cause you to grow cold. Now, if they don't repent, look at his warning. I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, probably what that means is that God has no vested promise that, hey, no matter what, if you're a church, I'm, I have to keep you going. He can snuff it out, right? Remember on... The tribe has voted. You're off the team. God has, he doesn't need Riverstone Church. He doesn't need any particular church. He's going to get his work done. Now, interestingly, the purpose of a lampstand is to shine light, to be a witness. And so what he's telling this church is, I'll remove your witness unless you repent. Now, ironically, according to church history, this church responded well and became a strong, shining church after this. Now then he has another condemnation. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now Austin's going to get into the deeds of the Nicolaitans in more detail, so we'll leave this 
for him to come back, but they were inviting people to participate in immorality and cultic emperor worship. So, and then Jesus closes with this promise. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, there's a long history of God speaking that way because, in essence, there are times that God wants to reveal truth and conceal truth. When Jesus spoke in parables, they said, why are you using parables? People can't understand. He says, because I want them to get it and I don't want them to get it. Well, why wouldn't he want somebody to get it? Because of their hardness of heart. And so Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, if you want to get it, you'll get it. Just like the disciples, they had ears to hear when Jesus told a parable. If they didn't understand it, they went to him. They said, Jesus, explain that. People who didn't have ears to hear went home and said, honey, crazy guy Jesus is talking about some farmer. I have no idea what he's talking about. So ask God to speak to you. The Lord delights when we cry out to him and say, Lord, open my eyes, speak to my heart. And so as, as this closes, look at his promise. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now the idea of overcoming, we'll spend more time on this, but it relates to what we call the doctrine of perseverance, and it's simply this. Everyone who is a true Christian, a true believer, will persevere in their faith. And anything short of that, if, if one day someone comes and says, I don't believe that anymore. There's no such thing in scripture of a true Christian losing their salvation. It can't happen. Romans chapter eight says, everyone he predestines, he calls. Everyone he calls, he justifies. He declares them righteous. And everyone he justifies, he glorifies. So what we need to understand is not everyone who calls themselves saved is truly saved. And the mark of true believers is perseverance. And so Christ will call to each of his churches and say, overcome, overcome, overcome. And then he promises them. And each promise has something to do with the life to come. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The early church fathers felt that these symbols refer to something now as well, like to enjoy this benefit now, a, a little taste of heaven in this life. As, as we repent and walk close to Jesus, we enjoy some of this fruit now, but we wait for the future fruit. Now, here's where the irony flips. The first church lost their first love. This next church had a misplaced love or were in danger of a misplaced love because while Jesus wants us to love him, he also said, if you love your life in this world more than you love me, you're going to lose your soul. So one of the things Christ asks his followers to do is to be willing even to die for your faith in Christ. And there are many people who say, hey, listen, if it costs me anything, I'm not going to be a Christian. So Jesus says, don't love your life. Don't fear them who can take your life. But instead, orient your life around God who can put your soul in hell. And so this next church is going to be called to a tremendous trial. Let's see what we read here. The angel of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna interesting was it was a particular area where the city officials were particularly dedicated to 
and the, the cult of worshiping the emperor. By this time, most of these cities actually had emperor worship, where they would practice worshiping the emperor and offer sacrifices. And it was impossible to even be part of the, the city life without having a part in some part of this imperial cult. In fact, the city officials, according to Beale, were so dedicated to the cult that they even gave money to the citizens to sacrifice to the emperor. And so there was great pressure on the Christians because if it was emperor worship day, everybody came. It was like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So if you didn't show up, if you refused to participate in emperor worship, that was seen as political disloyalty, unpatriotic, you would be arrested and probably executed. So talk about raising the stakes. Suddenly you become a Christian in a city that has great emphasis on emperor worship. And you go, I can't do that anymore. Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not, there are actually coins that we found, not we, that say, Kaiser Estin Kurios, Caesar is Lord. The Bible says, Yesu Estin Kurios, Jesus is Lord. What a great tension. This is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Are you going to bow or are you not going to bow? So look what Jesus says to the church at Smyrna. I'm the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Now, I think that's foreboding, saying, hey, some of you may die, but just like I came to life, you will. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, this church, probably their poverty was caused by persecution. Don't forget, in the first century, if you stopped worshiping the, 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 the emperor deity, or if you were a Jew and you stopped going to the synagogue, you were put under severe financial strain. The Jews, if you were a Jew, they wouldn't do business with you. They'd fire you. You couldn't buy food from them. And, and in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, some of you even had your property confiscated. It was costly to follow Christ. And so this church probably had poverty based on persecution. But Jesus says, don't worry, you might not have two nickels, but you're rich. I'll never forget that. The poorest Christian is richer than the richest pagan. We are filthy rich in a godly sense. So with that being said, he goes, and I know the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So here's what was happening at the time. Rome allowed Jews to practice Judaism. But by now, the Jews had begun to hate their friends who, who, who quote, betrayed them and professed Christ and got baptized. So what they began to do is turn in the Christians. They would give the Christians names to the authorities. And so Jesus is calling these people who are supposedly religious, they're Satan's helpers. They're a synagogue of Satan. But now he tells this church, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Wait, what? What's going to happen? Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now that 10 days, many believe is symbolic. I don't think that they were only going to be in prison for 10 days, but think about this. Suppose you got a letter, Jesus sent a letter to the church at Riverstone. This church, now one church, Church of Philadelphia, he said, I'm going to give you a pass. Tribulation is not going to come on you. But this church, he said, some of you are going to be thrown in prison. And you're like, dang, do I have to do like three days or six months? 
No. When you were thrown in prison back then, it was usually just a precursor for execution. Look what it says. You will have tribulation 10 days, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Can you imagine? The Lord says to you, you're about to be put to death. Don't deny me. Because I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So, that's a good thing to think about. Physical death isn't fun. In fact, we're going to learn about Antipas, who was martyred in the next church. Supposedly, they put him in a, in a, in a, a, a hollow golden calf, and they put him inside of it and then lit a fire under it. So imagine being inside of a metal, like a metal barrel, while there's a fire under it, and you're, you're being burned to death. But physical death, compared to spiritual death, there's no comparison. Because Jesus says, the second death won't touch you. The Bible says the second death is day and night in the lake of fire. So this is intense. This is Jesus saying, listen, do not be afraid. Even, and, and as much as we go, oh, this could never happen. It's happening all over the world right now. It's happening all over the world. And what would make us think that it would never happen here? There, according to Barna, there are like 48% of Americans call themselves born-again Christians. I guarantee you that if it even hurt their pocketbook, if they were told, you'll be fine for being a born-again Christian, the numbers would dramatically drop. Imagine who's going to call themselves a born-again Christian when it might cost you your life. So how do I prepare for this? How do I say, Lord, I'm a coward. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what I would do. Well, I think there's a couple things to think about. Number one, in order to prepare for something like this, you prepare ahead of time. Jesus would often warn us, pray, pray, pray that you may have strength to stand before the Son of Man. So pray for our country. Pray that we won't undergo this persecution. First Timothy says, pray that Christians can lead a peaceable life. But be praying for people all over the world who are facing martyrdom. They're being killed if they won't renounce their faith. Pray that they will overcome. Revelation 12 says that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And finally, pray personally. Pray personally. Here's what Paul taught us in Philippians 1. He was sitting in a prison, and he really didn't know whether he was going to be put to death. He was about to be tried by, by Caesar. So this is what he said in Philippians 1.20. This is my earnest expectation and hope. This is what I'm praying for. That in nothing I will be put to shame, but that Christ will always be exalted in my body, whether by life, or by death. So he prayed on a regular basis, Lord, if they put my neck on that block and they say, deny Jesus, I pray that my mouth will speak your praise, that you will be exalted in my body by life or by death. So the next verse, after all, he says, for me, to live is Christ. That's what it means to live for Christ, is to say, it's not about me, 
I've already died with Christ. Now it's just letting Christ live through me. But we all sit there and we go, well, what if the gun went to my head? I heard somebody give what I felt to be a great answer to that. Do you want to know whether you would be willing to die for Christ? Ask yourself a different question. Are you willing to live for Christ? What do I mean by that? Are you willing to stop living for yourself? To what the Bible says, die to yourself daily. Take up your cross, obeying and serving and loving Jesus. If you've already decided that you're willing to live for Christ, then in a roundabout way, haven't you sort of answered the question of whether you'll die for Christ? Because the reality is probably most of us aren't going to be asked to die for Christ. But we need to pray if we do. Dave Livingston introduced me to a, an African Christian once who literally said, that's my greatest desire is to be a martyr. Because in the country he's in, that's very, very common. If you have time, look up Polycarp. Read about Polycarp because Polycarp was supposedly encouraged by this letter to the church at Smyrna and became a great martyr for Christ in the first century. So we have this small window. When you go to a graveside where I was at this week, there's a little dash between two dates. That little dash is our lives. And we need to ask ourselves, am I going to live my life loving Christ and not loving my life? Or am I going to choose to ignore Christ and love my life? We have great hope, don't we, as Christians? We're kept by the power of God. But this is serious business. And so if you're here today and you haven't given your life to Christ, you heard Rich Beagle, you heard Cameron, I don't know what you're waiting for. We're here to talk to you. I won't lock you in the basement. There's elders, pastors to talk to. But if you're not sure you're going to heaven, you're headed for the second death. And Jesus is inviting you to come and believe and be saved. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I'll be the first one to say you, you've shown me areas where my love for Christ has grown cold. Help me to change, to pray more, witness more, to really want to trust and love and enjoy your company, not just work for you. And Lord, we pray for those Christians around the world who are dying literally for Christ. Give them strength. And Lord, whatever persecution awaits us in American culture, may we be willing to magnify Christ in our body, for all who live godly will be persecuted. Strengthen our church as we go through these letters, and may many more people come to Christ, and may none of us fall away from the faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.